0: Well, good morning, church. It's great to connect with you here this morning. We're in the second message of our series called Blessed Are Those, where we are looking into the first part of Jesus' most famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. These first 12 verses in the book of Matthew chapter 5, it's called the Beatitudes. And each week we're going to be covering one Beatitude after the next. And one of the things that you'll find in each of these Beatitudes, or at least it should, raise some eyebrows each time because it really keys on this word blessed blessed are those blessed of course means the fortunate circumstances that we find that we are in surrounding us but it also indicates God's role that God was the one that provided the fortunate circumstances that we are able to enjoy but the kinds of blessed circumstances that Jesus offers or says in his beatitudes are not the things that we would want I mean, who wants to be poor or, or weak or meek or, or in mourning or, or persecuted for your faith? Nobody wants those things. And yet Jesus is the one that said that they are blessed. And the question that should drive up out of these different verses is why? Why would Jesus say that people in those situations are blessed? So it absolutely targets the people that are the least, the last, and the lost in our society. But... I kind of did a little irony in our in the series title called Blessed Are Those because it's tempting for us to think of those people over there. Those people are the ones that are hurting, that Jesus is talking to. And it's tempting for us to look at these different Beatitudes and say, well, it's not really for me. I appreciate it. I say amen to these things, but really has nothing to do, no bearing on my practical life. And if we say that to ourselves, we're going to be missing out on the richness and the depth of these Beatitudes. Beatitudes that Jesus is offering to his people. And that's especially true in this next Beatitude in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, which says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, if you immediately think about the people that are mourning because they just lost a loved one, you're probably correct. This was the image that people would have had in their minds in Jesus' original audience in the first century. There was all kinds of dramatic rites and rituals that were offered to people in that day in the process of mourning. You could see all throughout scripture different things that was given permission in society when someone was grieving or lost a loved one. You could see people shaving their heads or tearing their clothes or fasting for a number of days and renting out sackcloth clothes so that they could wear that for a number of days to signal to the wider society that they were grieving, that they had lost, that they were in mourning uh, with one another. And one of the One of the practices was to sit without eating or drinking, eating meat or drinking wine, sit in their homes without bathing for seven days and seven nights, and they would just sit there. And this is a practice you see in Judaism today, something called sitting Shiva, where people would come and visit people in their homes as they are grieving. And this outward expression, this sort of social permission for people to grieve and mourn is something that you see in all kinds of other societies, even today around the world, and it's wonderful, and it's powerful, and it's really liberating for those that are grieved. But then when you contrast that with our own society, and you think about the lack of permission that our society gives to people, you, you wonder what we might be missing out on. Now, granted, there are funeral proceedings and uh, different rites that, that we practice in our own society, in our own culture, but time and time again, when I have ministered to people who have lost a loved one, they are immediately confronted with the fact that, that people that are bereaved are sitting in their pain and their loss, and their sorrow. And it continues to last. But even after the funeral proceedings and the burials and and all of that, life just keeps going on at a fast pace. And so what happens, what I find to people that are in sadness and grieving is that they see the world around them continuing to move without them. And they feel the need to catch up or to keep up with wider society. And so we have this way about us where we tend to put on a show or pretend that everything is all right. You know, we, we've been wearing these masks around our faces for quite some time now. And I know they're really uncomfortable. People don't like them if you do outside work. I can imagine that is just really bothering and annoying. And if you wear glasses, I've seen it gets fogged up and, and all of that But the truth is that inwardly, we have gotten used to wearing these kinds of emotional masks for far longer than this pandemic has struck. No matter what the communication is, whether it's social media or what have you, we have gotten so good at pretending as though everything is okay. Now, some of this is by our own making. I had a friend one time, she had a really traumatic experience growing up. She was about a middle schooler and she lost her brother at the age of 17. He committed suicide. And she was a really strong person. And she saw the grief that was happening on her mother's face. She she decided in that moment that she was going to be the strong one. And so she buried her grief. And it wasn't until many years later that that began to surface. And it came up in far more damaging ways. Because she had buried it. But there's also this sort of social stigma that goes along with grief and pain, where we as a society and we as a culture, we, we don't allow one another to truly surrender ourselves in grief and to truly name the fact that, that we are in sorrow. About eight years ago, my marriage was almost over. And it was hard for me to recognize at the time. But I went on a hike with a friend of mine, my best friend. And you know who your best friends are when they can tell you the truth. And he looked at me and he said, I think you need counseling. And immediately my walls went up. No way am I going to do counseling. I'm a pastor I'm the kind of person that's supposed to have it all together and to model what it looks like to have a flourishing life in Jesus. There's no way that I'm going to see a counselor. Pastors don't see counselors. We are the counselors. We don't see counselors. And I was afraid. I was afraid of the stigma and what other people might think. You see, if you... You may think to yourself that while you're not grieving in this moment, you're not suffering in this moment, you're not dealing with this pain, chances are that there are many around us that appear as though everything is okay, and it's not. And this scripture, this beatitude speaks directly to them. And if anything, it could speak to the wider society that we have created, we, that we have a hand in. And my guess is that there are a number of people that you don't even know about within your circles that right now are dealing with their sadness, dealing with pain, dealing with suffering, dealing with loss, and not just mourning, but depression and anxiety, bipolar disorder, sadness. There are people all around us and we don't even know it. Because we don't tend to give them the space to show their pain. It's these kinds of walls that are important for us to recognize as modern readers because it's in that situation and in that position that Jesus says those who are mourning are blessed. And why are they blessed? They're blessed because they're going to be comforted. And I talked about this last week, but all of this is describing the very kingdom of God, the realm of God. But in this case, it also is speaking not just to the kingdom of God, but the king. And that God is our comforter. We see scriptures all throughout the Bible on this. There's so many of them in the book of Isaiah. I just invite you to look up and read through the book of Isaiah and you'll see it pop up all the time. One of my favorites is Isaiah 40. It says, comfort, oh, comfort my people, says the Lord. It's a really powerful piece of scripture. And many scriptures, many times I use at funeral proceedings when I'm ministering to those who have experienced loss. Comfort to my people. God is a comforter. The same word in the Greek that's used in this beatitude is also linked to another word or another space that we find where Jesus is describing the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is trying to describe what life is going to be like after he leaves his people. And he says, and some of your Bibles might say in John chapter 14 verse 28, that is the Holy Spirit or the advocate or the helper that will come after him. But other translations might say it is the comforter that comes by our side. See, this is the very nature and character of God. God is a comforter to us. It's part of of who he is. It's a very extension of himself. And there's a big C comforter, which means we can even pray that as a name of God. Oh, great comforter, come to my aid. Sometimes it's easy to undermine or neglect the power of God's comfort. I know we talk a lot about God's healing. And when we talk about God's healing, a lot of times we think about God's curing. And, or the removal of the pain that we're experiencing. The removal of the circumstances around us. And Jesus has displayed that power. God has that power. And I believe it is a power that is available to us today. But in the process of seeking the healing of the Lord, I I think sometimes we forget about the power of the comfort of the Lord. And this is important to us because as much as I've worked with people who suffer loss or are grieving or filled with anxiety... Yes, they'll talk about their circumstances. They'll talk about the chemicals in their brain that they're, they're fighting against. They're talking about all of these different things that they want healing from, that God, they want God to remove from their life. But time and time again, I also hear them say this. I feel like I'm the only one going through this. This is what the comfort of the Lord specifically pays attention to. That no matter what we go through, no matter what grieves us, no matter what causes a sadness within us, God says to us, but you're not alone. You're not alone. And look, I don't know when God heals and when God doesn't heal. I'm still growing in that spiritual maturity. But I also know that what God offers to us in every occasion is to be our comforter our healer, yes, and our comforter. Now, this word comfort is also linked to another idea that it is a gathering, almost as if Jesus Christ is gathering us unto himself, that there's a communion and a fellowship and a connection that happens with us and God as he offers his comfort. This is the same kind of idea that we get from Jesus When he's talking about Jerusalem that we see in Matthew chapter 23, starting with verse 37. Take a look at what he says here. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you, you were not willing. So this is the question I want to leave with you today. Are you willing? Are you willing? Are you willing God to be the great comforter in your life? And are you willing to allow God to be the comforter for those around you? There's a couple of ways I think we can express our willingness to allow God to bless us with his comfort two specific virtues or two specific ways. First, honesty, and then empathy. I'm gonna talk a little bit about honesty. Just this week, my family went to the local park, the local playground. You know, the playgrounds were now opening, and we were really relieved by that. The kids loved to go to the playground. But my son is eight years old now, and he was a little afraid that there might be, not be any kids his age to play with at the playground. So I said, okay, well, let's get a baseball and a glove and a bat, and we'll go on the ball field if there's no one for you to play with. And lo and behold, there was no one his age, so we went over to the ball field. And at the ball field, there was a, uh, some middle schoolers there. They were already playing. And as we approached, they said, hey, do you want to come play with us? And I said, yeah, that's great. It's a great opportunity for my, my son to, to learn the game. And so we joined their game. Uh, But one of the things I was confronted with, and this is my Father's Day confession here. One of the things I was confronted with is that I really did not do a good job of teaching my son really the rules of baseball. And we all know there's a lot of rules to baseball. And of course, these middle schoolers all knew the rules to the game. And so in the midst of playing the game, he had, you know, kind of made some mistakes. You know, he he actually did really well. He hit the ball really well, but then, you know, he carried the bat with him all the way to first base, and there were different things. And the the older kids were really gracious and kind of directing him and everything like that. But I could see that he was getting a little upset, and he kind of motioned over to me, and he he told me that he kind of wanted to leave. He he wanted to quit. And I said, well, let's not leave the game, um, but we'll talk about it later. So we finished the game and we were walking back home and he was pretty frustrated. He was pretty upset with me. And you know, in his eight-year-old mind, it kind of came out in all these different directions. I never wanted to play baseball in the first place. I didn't want to do this. I'm never going to be good at the sport. You know, all of these eight-year-old boy, dramatic emotional things that we deal with, right? And I knew exactly what was happening in this moment. That as much as he was expressing his anger and his frustration and pointing the finger at those around him, even his dad, I just knew he was embarrassed. And so I asked him, I said, You know, it sounds like sounds like you're embarrassed. He's like, Yeah, I am embarrassed. Now this is a common thing if you're parenting young children, you know this. This is a common thing as children grow and they mature and they're trying to figure out their own emotions and and all of that. But I think adults do this as well. I think adults tend to lash out in anger or outrage or frustration and point the finger at everybody else. And it's all just a distraction from what is truly honest and that is that we're afraid or we're insecure or we're hurt in that particular moment. It's important for us to be honest if we're going to be willing to let God be the comforter in our hearts and in our lives. You know, our weeds have roots. Some of you probably been gardening. The weather's great for that. And you've been pulling weeds, right? And you've been, you know that if you just try to take the tops of those weeds off in your garden, they're going to grow right back, maybe even a matter of days. you got to get under and expose the roots and pull the roots out. That's what God wants to get at. It's the things that are under the surface, the things that are really bugging us, the things that are really causing this mourning and crying and pain. And we got to be willing to be honest about that. It's really at the heart of the practice of Confession. <laughs> I know it's popular to think about it in terms of, you know, listing our rap sheet to the priest or the pastor or whoever. But it's more than that. It's really just an uncovering of what's real and true inside of us. The hurt, the wounds that we carry, the sadness that we feel. It's just naming the reality. It's a, it's a holy honesty. This is something I work with when I'm counseling uh, m- married couples And it's really common, you know, in the first meeting, I meet with married couples in counseling, and they begin to describe the circumstances that led to the need for counseling in the first place, the disagreements, the fights, the arguments, maybe some really more tragic and deeper stuff like infidelity and all of that. And they begin to describe the circumstances. But one of the things that I like to, and one of the exercises I like to get them to is to begin thinking about, yes, these circumstances that are causing pain, but to associate their own feelings with them as well. And to name those things when they're describing it. And so what we do is we have say, this is a problem, this is something I have a problem with. And then I ask them to state out loud, what is the feeling that you have associated with that? And it's amazing what happens when these couples are finally able to name the, name the feeling and the emotions That they've been feeling all along. The understanding, the mutual connection that happens in that moment is really just getting honest. And the same is true in our relationship with God. It's our ability to uncover the surface stuff and to be truly honest, to be brave enough to be truly honest, to let the comfort of the Lord be our strength. So that's the first word, honesty. The second, virtue. If we're going to be willing to to let God be our comforter is is empathy, empathy. Empathy really is the ability to to sit in the mess that someone else is, is sitting in. There's a great book of the Bible called the Book of Job and many of you have read it, I know, but some of you might not be familiar with it. And Job really is the epitome of the suffering human being. Everything tragic and devastating in this world happened to him. Everything was taken away from him. His family was killed. He lost his home, his livelihood, his personal health, everything. And it left Job in this state of complete brokenness and surrender. And he's sitting there in the ashes of his own home that had burned down. And then in chapter 2, in the book of Job, it, it talks to us about how he had three friends. And once these three friends heard about everything that had happened to him, they got up immediately and they went out. And the scripture says, I believe in first, verse 11, chapter 2 of Job, that they went to console and to comfort him. So what did they do? Well, the scripture tells us that they looked far off at Job in his in his state of affairs, and they didn't even recognize him at first because of how tragic he looked, and they began tearing their clothes—all of those same mourning rites that I listed before—tearing their clothes, weeping, wailing, mourning. And then, when they approach, they sit with him in the ashes. They sit with him for seven days and seven nights. And the scripture is very deliberate of including this detail. They said nothing. They didn't offer any diagnosis. They didn't ask him how he was doing. They just simply sat in his grief. That is what empathy is. But that story doesn't end so well. Because immediately after that part of the story... The book of Job tells us that the three friends began to open their mouths. And they began telling Job what he did wrong. And they began diagnosing what led to these unfortunate circumstances and how he could have done it differently to prevent them. And they begin offering solutions and start playing the blame game and doing all of those things. And we get this grand picture that they are not helping. They stopped expressing empathy. You know, I've been really trying to get a grasp at what's happening in the world around us today. I know some of you might be tired of hearing about this, but... The reality is, if we're going to talk about mourning and crying in pain, the truth is that we have people all throughout our country and we have people in our congregation, our black and brown brothers and sisters, that are hurting right now. And as I've reached out to many of them, that's what the expression I get. They are sad. They are hurting. They're feeling the, the weight of the tension that is palpable in our society, and our culture right now. And what makes it harder for them sometimes is that their friends, their white brothers and sisters, even with the best of intentions, attempting to engage them not with sitting in their sorrow with them, but of trying to engage in these national dialogues with them. Sending articles and videos and trying to come up with mutual solutions and agreements on these national stages. Can I, can I just offer a pastoral word to you if you're my white brothers and sisters? There might be time, and I hope that there's time for us to have those dialogues if there's any place in society that can offer a, a place of healing and reconciliation with healthy dialogue, I hope it's the church, and I hope that it's our church. But right now, it's time to show empathy, to sit with our brothers and sisters in the midst of their pain. Someone told me a story one recently that they did just that to one of our African-American brothers in this church. And trust me, these two would probably go rounds when it comes to a political debate. But in this moment, our white brother saw the pain in our African-American brother in our church and just reached out to him and said, if you need to vent, vent. And he did. He didn't offer any solutions. He just sat in it, sat in it with him. Empathy is the waiting room experience with hugs, and sitting with the, the, the patient that's ready to have their surgery, empathy is not becoming the surgeon. We need more hugs than surgeries right now. Can we do that? Can we, can we offer that to one another and expressing the empathy of the Lord? You see, it's God's comfort. That when we get truly honest, we allow God's comfort to come into our sadness, to come into our hearts, and to bless us with his work and his comfort. And it's out of that, then we then can extend that same comfort to those that are hurting around us. You know, I know some people um, don't like to, to think about this, but There are lots of people that are hurting around us, our black and brown brothers and sisters in our congregation and around in our community. But I I know that, you know, we have police officers in our congregation as well. Those that are also feeling the weight of this and their families and their kids are feeling the weight when there's different rhetoric and things about police officers. They feel that too. You know, we don't have to choose sides. We can, out of the comfort and empathy of the Lord, we can reach out to whoever's in our reach because it's God's comfort that flows through us. It's really why we decided as a pastoral staff and the elder board of the church decided to come up with a statement this uh, this week Many of you have seen that. If you haven't, they'll be on our website. We decided to come up with a statement so that we can show the empathy and comfort of the Lord. It's an address to make sure that we are uh, unambiguous about where we stand on racism and racial prejudice, to understand church history, where we did it right, where we fell short, but mostly to show the empathy of the Lord. And to say that we hurt, we cry with your cries, we hurt with your hurts to the greatest extent that we can. We're here with you. I love 2 Corinthians 1 through 4, and I'll leave this with you. It says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Are we willing? Are we willing? Are we willing to get honest, to let God truly minister to us in our grief and our pain and our sadness? And are we willing to be empathetic that out of God's comfort, we can have a hand in being the comfort of God for those around us. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray together. Holy God, thank you for this moment. And for those of us that are sitting in our sadness as the world has passed us by, I pray, God, that we would open up and let you bring your comfort to us. And for those of us that life is good and we're riding high and all is well, I pray, God, that we would have the spirit of empathy to bring your comfort to those who are hurting. Help us to be your people Help us to follow you in your ways and help us be a blessing to those around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you're sitting at home with your loved ones or if you're by yourself, there will be a series of questions like we do each week for you to reflect on or discuss with those around you. Just invite you to take some time with those, discuss them, tease them out a little bit. All with the hope and the prayer that God would continue to speak to you into your heart and in your life. God wouldn't repeat my words, but would present his word to you in your heart and your home. And so I just pray that you'd be blessed in this week, that you'd hear God speak, that you, as you open up, that God would minister to you, and that you can experience the blessings of the Lord. Have a great week.